Here's a question for you. What makes you believe that there is a protein-coated virus that spreads across the globe through droplets? And to curb the spread, you must stay indoors and wear a mask while going outside, as the government is trying to manage the crisis. What if it's just another way to distract us? What if it's intentionally created to harm certain groups of people, or certain countries, or certain sectors of the economy? After all, many people believe in that. Like, so you think this is all a hoax created by Twitter? That's what you're saying. I think. I think. Yeah. I think. Well, one cloud started this virus. Coronavirus is caused by 5G technology. I'm not living in fear of COVID-19. What I'm living in fear of is what's happening to this country. And you, know, and you might say, these people are simply the odd ones in the community. They may not be as critical or well informed. But if that's the case. Why do many world leaders engage in a similar narrative Now, too? The Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. You know, it's all turning. They lost, and this is their new hoax. Jair Bolsonaro has compared the new coronavirus to a little flu and condemned. This virus did not originate in the Wuhan animal market. The virus went into that food market before it came out. How can that be? I'm Tanita. I'm Sean Corrigan. And this is Indonesia in depth. Enter the world of post-truth. Uh, post-truth is a social political situation where emotion prevail over fact, over objective uh, fact of rationality in order to really to create attention sometime voluntary that is why it is a question it is no more a question of fact a question of objectivity but it is a question of emotion and in politics hoaxes are resources uh, which are always manipulated to win the battles of interest That is Dr. Hayat Moko, explaining what post-truth is in politics. He was one of the selected panelists for the 2019 Indonesian presidential election debates for issues on ideology. He teaches philosophy, ethics, and politics in various universities in Indonesia. Let's hold his thoughts there first. The word post-truth gained a lot of attention and influence since 2016. Although arguably its intellectual origin started much before that, the term only became so prominent since the surprise victory of Donald Trump and the UK Brexit. So much so, it even became a word of the year by the Oxford Words Dictionary in 2016. There is a good reason why the WHO has what they call a MythBuster, a special section on their website. Specifically, to cater with facts that are false, or how the Indonesian COVID-19 task force actively conducts fact checkers and posts them in its hoax buster, and social media platforms are heavily pressured to take down post-truth ideas. Post-truth ideas or baseless information can really have great consequences if spread and accepted by the mainstream. Especially when they come out of authoritative figures such as political leaders. But not all politicians. 
I will qualify only those who are called as Demarco. Because manipulation in this situation permeates through values, ideas, opinion, so that the three article to differentiate, which result the audience acceptance of them as a fact. And so there is no more differences between uh, values, ideas, opinions, fact, yeah. so that all can be considered as a fact. And once the mainstream accepts what they say as a fact, as a truth, then it's not very likely for one to change their mind. Because Hobbes try to satisfy the audience conviction. Hobbes try to give the satisfaction what you expected. Mm-hmm. So that it confirms with your yeah. own belief and yeah. your own worldview. What is called mm-hmm. uh, in psychology, what we call muller liar illusion. Dr. Hariat Moko used the Mueller liar illusion, an optical illusion where arrows are stylized differently, but actually have the same length. He noted that if our first impression is convinced that one is longer than the other, it will be very difficult for us to change our minds even if he told us that the arrows are exactly the same length. He suggests that once we accept something as true the first time, it will be very difficult to convince us otherwise. In explaining why people might, in general, make and accept claims of these seemingly wild narratives as the truth in this post-truth era, we need to venture into the science of epistemology. And from there we ask, how does our reasoning work to find truth? It's safe to say that epistemology has to do with the science of knowledge. Um, so it's not just about what you know in particular sciences like physics or biology or chemistry. There is this meta um, study into how your reasoning works in either of these disciplines. This is Dr. Diana Papesco, a teaching fellow at King's College London. One of her research interests is about post-truth ideas, and she wrote a piece about this on Aeon.co, and we reached out to her to get her insights. So epistemology as a branch of uh, philosophy will take you down various uh, rabbit paths. So one is about how you get to know the world generally, um, and this is where actually skepticism is an important school of thought, speaking of how post-truthers are. You know, they're not this completely different strain of, uh, of human beings. They're yeah. just uh, uh, people who, who share a lot of our beliefs. And it has to do with uh, different theories of what truth um, is. So how what we say about reality corresponds or not to what that reality is. What's most interesting in the context of uh, post-truth is that there are different theories about uh, what truth is. Um, And for most of history, we seem to have had this correspondence view um, of what truth is, saying was something is true, or what makes something true is the fact that our statements uh, about the facts correspond to the facts themselves. 
So when you say it's snowing outside, what makes this true is that if you look out the window, you will see snow. But what uh, the 20th century has done is create this epistemic turn in which it's become more and more acceptable to think about truth as not just this correspondence with that fact, but a coherent story around that touches on reality, of course, but the best explanation of what reality is when we have advanced scientific knowledge will take you to much higher levels of abstraction. So that uh, on a coherentist theory of truth, you do touch reality, but sort of at the margins. And then most of the science that we have around reality are these explanations about how you come to consider particular things in, in science or even mathematics as being uh, true because there's no fact of the matter as to whether 2 plus 2 equals 4. You, you can't verify it through your senses, but this whole web of belief, um, and this is the metaphor that uh, Willard Fine, who is one of the most important advocates of coherentism says, um, so there's this web of belief around mathematics that gives account of so many different things and so much of our way of thinking that could only function if 2 plus 2 equals 4. This belief that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is at the center of a system of thought that has been proven time and time again to cohere with what we know, but the way we verify it is not empirical. My beliefs about post-truth more generally is that actually there's quite a lot of an overlap between post-truth and truth in the sense that the same faculties that lead us to search for truth um, are the same that unfortunately lead us down um, the wrong path um, when, when people get into post-truth. Because what, what tends to happen when people start entertaining post-truth belief, um, beliefs is that they uh, show skepticism, which is a very good epistemic faculty to have and one that has throughout, uh, throughout our history um, and throughout science uh, led to good results. Then there is this sort of, I wouldn't say a myth, but actually something that we see around us all the time in science of the epistemic hero who believes in a theory that seems crazy and to be something that you entertain despite all odds at that particular time, but it turns out to be true mm. later on. Think of Einstein when he first came up with his theory of relativity. He was ignored, if not ridiculed, for many years by almost every scientist outside of Germany. Some even ended tragically. Think about the heavy protocols to wash hands now, especially to stop the spread of germs in hospitals. The person who figured that out, Dr. Semmelweis, was rejected by other doctors at that time and was eventually committed to a mental asylum. So what I think about post-truthers is that these are people who manifest some of the same faculties that those of us who are following what the scientists are saying and believing mainstream theories also um, also do, also think, also believe, but up to a point. So if all of us generally question things and are skeptical about the information we receive, and if all of us collect quote-unquote evidence, so what makes some of us turn to scientists or data-driven facts 
while some turn to this. But there is a growing belief that the COVID-19 virus originated in the Wuhan lab, not as a bioweapon, but as China's effort to find and deal with viruses to show the world China was as good as or better than the coronavirus the being weaponized as yet another element to bring down Donald Trump. I am not going now, to erase the their future because I was afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. So, um, if, if you look at uh, people who believe that the Earth is flat um, and what kind of evidence they are looking for, they are at the status of scientists in the pre-Copernican uh, era. So, they're trust in their mistrust is in experts is so high that they discount everything that happened with Copernicus and uh, and over that but the kind of experiments that they're designing to confirm or disconfirm their beliefs are actually very very detailed and uh, I don't know if that rapper BOB managed to do it but the plan was to crowdfund a weather balloon to go up yeah. in the sky and see if you can see the curve um, or not. But if you look at the experiments, you know, it's the same experiments that you would do if you're confirming this. It's just that these people don't trust that what other scientists are telling them yes. is true. They want to, to check it themselves. So what really makes a difference is where we put our trust. Let's go back to my first question. So what makes you believe that there is a protein-coated virus that spreads through droplets and to curb the spread, you must stay indoors and wear masks while going outside as the government is trying to manage the crisis? Unless you work in a lab, none of us can really see the virus with our naked eyes. We cannot empirically verify that there is truly a virus, let alone that is lethal. So why do we believe them? The best answer is, we probably accept it as the truth because we believe in what the health officials are saying. We trust them. In fact, think about this. Most of the things in your life that you thought were truth are not things you experimented with on your own, but they were given to you and you voluntarily accepted them. So in acquiring knowledge and accepting truths, we have operated with trust. Some says that because we live in an information era, uh, we have the freedom to choose whichever opinion that we want. What makes it more prone for people to believe in, say, these leaders who make claims that are seemingly uh, wild uh, compared to, say, WHO or, or CDC or other health authoritative? Um, well, that's a great question, and uh, this is where I can show you that I've done my, my homework for today. <laughs> I'm a little bit embarrassed because it involves actually receiving some of these theories from someone who believes them in earnest. Uh, someone from the US, sorry, Sean. Uh. <laughs> 
sent over material, I guess, with uh, with the aim to inform me. Based on just what these people sent, I can see that there's uh, a very familiar structure, actually, to the claims that are being made. But that's quite similar to other post-truth cases. So in the arguments I've seen, um, there is this very attractive idea that there are some occult interests involved which is very appealing to us, speaking of how uh, everyone can access different sources of information now, because you know none of us here, I guess, would be able to judge from the picture of a virus what this says or not. But everyone can judge um, very simplistic uh, arguments in terms of you know, the, the economy. The fact that, yes, if uh, big cities in the West would lose out, then that would definitely mean an advantage for, for other cities. Um, so this is something that in the post-truth literature has been linked to different systems of thought thinking. So there's system one thinking, which is pretty much your lizard brain saying, aha, yes, this sounds true. And then uh, there's system two, which is much more refined. That's the one we associate with science, with taking a step back and saying, well, hold on a minute. So in the, um, in the explanations for, uh, for this origin of the virus that I've seen, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, oh, there seems to be a motive behind why um, the Chinese government maybe would, uh, would invent this. Because if you look at the map of China, it's not the big economic centers that were affected, but it's a region that most of the world didn't know about uh, before this crisis started. Whereas if you look at the UK or if you look at the US, uh, we know that those are the big cities. So there's this disparity. And speaking of how post-truthers and, and truthers aren't that distinct, this kind of looking at the discrepancy and saying, well, that's funny, um, you know, that's a basic move in, in science. So what, that's what Alexander Fleming said, uh, literally, when he saw uh, that penicillin was, was doing stuff to the staphylococci. He said, well, that's funny that we only have this uh, effect there. So it's the same kind of impulse, but it's based on this occult interest, you know, Wuhan versus New York. And then, so this is the same group of, I guess, uh, of memes that I received. And then there's this argument that if you look at the, these other regions in China, they are much, you know, the economic centers in China are this and this number of kilometers closer to Wuhan than London and New York is. And this is very classic system one versus system two thinking, because to think this is spatial, you know, from the point of view of space closer than this, that's system one, to think, well, actually, of course, you have these different areas that are much more connected, uh, you know, these big economic centers in the UK, in the US, that are very much more connected to, to the world. And that's why you can explain how this happened. And you had Wuhan already closed down, you know, that takes this kind of stepping away from the absolute direct considerations of spatial proximity to thinking in terms of connectedness, to thinking in terms of, um, in terms of planes and people rather than, oh, this is a number of kilometers. And then there's also the question of how come um, in China they managed to control the virus so well in, in Wuhan, um, as opposed to in other regions there being this seemingly uncontrolled spread of the virus, um, because in the UK, it's not just London, even though London has most cases, it's spread with the whole country. So how come in China you had this? Which, again, your instinctive thought is, is to say, aha, that's funny. But of course, the explanation has to do more with 
how the virus was spreading when it originally came out, because we know from the scientists that this virus becomes more and more successful as it's adapting. It has to do with the fact that in the kind of structure that we have in China, it's more easy to seal off um, an entire region. It has to do with the fact that you know, it started in Wuhan, not in Beijing. If it had started in Beijing, maybe maybe they would have had um, the first problem because here it started in London. Yeah, so for all these explanations, what I could see in just this uh, this number of, uh, of messages that I got sent is um, a very classic for post-truthers kind, kind of using explanations that are very simplistic combined you know and that's the post-truth element but combined with this oh that's funny have you thought of this discrepancy how would you um how would you explain it um so i would say that's what's uh, that's what's happening the urge to just make up a theory or think mm-hmm. of something is maybe because we also like humans like to put things into a pattern i would mm-hmm. say like like some things are more easier to explain that way than the other or something Mm -hmm. like if Mm -hmm. for say that the virus was like came from a biological weapon it makes more sense than it is to be caused by an animal Mm -hmm. coincidentally Mm -hmm. maybe so Mm -hmm. do you think it's just our urge of creating a pattern and sense of ease to Mm -hmm. it that's why we make it so convenient to believe in such a thing Mm -hmm. um Yes, definitely. So again, unless you uh, actually study um, what people believe and what make them reach this point, it's all speculative. You know, if I were to speculate, I would speculate along the same lines as um, as you, especially given that what we do know about uh, the virus, so what the experts keep telling us is that it was very much expected that uh, such an outbreak would happen. I don't work in the the relevant field of epidemiology, but in ethics, for instance, in bioethics, there are entire debates about how um, how to allocate resources in a crisis, and all of them are modeled on how to divide uh, respirators um, in the case of a viral uh, pandemic. So if you're a post-truther, you might say, oh, the ethicists were in cahoots with whoever invented the virus. But the evidence seems to be there that this was very much um, expected to, to happen. There are a lot of articles that I've just seen circulated uh, since uh, this pandemic began. It was expected that in the wet markets, that that would be the most likely place for one of these viruses to travel from an animal host to a human host. So for most people, I guess knowing these facts make the pattern, you know, what's coherent to be next in line in this pattern to have a a naturally occurring virus um, in the wild. But for people who have not encountered these studies, in epidemiology for people who have not seen um, all these discussions that you had about the dangers of wet markets. It seems that to have a mastermind who, who produced a virus, you know, that's something that they can relate to. That's something that, speaking of, uh, of, of stories and of narratives, that's something you see on TV uh, all the time, you know, this mastermind that comes up with the virus and sprinkles it into the world for various reasons. It's a story that seems more uh, believable. 
And it could also be tied, speaking of patterns, to a well-known uh, pattern also in ethics. <laughs> so sorry, this is just my <laughs> this is my background. So <laughs> this is where yeah, yeah. most of these no things problem. come from, uh, which is the belief in a just world, which is in a way we could say speaking in the same vocabulary as, as post-truth uh, theory. It systems one thinking to just assume that the world is just. And when it seems that something incredibly terrible is happening, to think that it's, a, uh, it's uh, something that was someone's uh, fault. And this was uh, brilliantly, but also very tragically evidenced in the case of rape survivors. Because there you, you had uh, people looking at different stories of rape survivors and having to rape how credible they, they were. And the most tragic or gruesome the story was told by a survivor, the more likely people were to disbelieve it. Um, but these were all true stories. So what explains the difference? Well, people who think we operate with this belief in a just world are saying it's because that's our pattern, that's our basic pattern to think that the world is just. So when we see something that disconfirms this, we tend to think, oh, um, it's the fault of that person. It's, we can just ignore um, that particular case. So that is something that we can maybe see in a, in, in a different way in this tragic uh, situation that we're in um, today. Instead of saying, well, you know, that's, that's what life is sometimes. Life it has this tragic element to it. And instead of saying, but moreover, it was expected to have a pandemic of, of viral influenza. You know, the experts were expecting something like this. And the most likely origin for it would have been in a wet market. To say instead, no, 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 this is definitely some kind of criminal mastermind. Because we all know about criminal masterminds, but we don't know about you know, the ethical, the ethical way of dividing respirators and the literature around that. So definitely patterns can play a role. For many, political and even religious figures are their epistemic authority, who they trust. But what if many of them reject the common health recommendations or even engage in post-truth ideas surrounding COVID-19? If we look strictly at uh, the political leaders and why they say this, it could be for a number of reasons, right? It's not necessarily because they believe it's true. But um, very often political leaders deal in uh, something that Plato called noble lies, but they can be, of course, more or less noble. We see that some political leaders try to unite the people against this common enemy, the virus. Diana compares this to Plato's noble lie, which stemmed from the fact that in a perfect city with different classes of people, based on different reasoning levels, the leaders have to lie to the people to maintain the classes and therefore maintain order. If one of their own strays away from their shared reasoning or ideology, then society itself is said to collapse. Because what we see around this virus is a very strong metaphor of a war that is going mm -hmm. on, that sometimes it can be good to motivate people to do something as simple as staying home. You know, you're actually a warrior even if you're just staying on your couch. So in that sort of dynamic, you can see why political leaders would try to draw legitimacy 
in a situation in which there's a high potential for, for regular people to turn against the government because what's happening is that you have poverty um, emerging, what's happening is that you have uh, these interdictions that are placed on people around the world. So I guess political leaders do have a big interest in uh, dealing in these stories that paint the virus as a foreign uh, threat, paint the virus as an enemy that's very similar to the enemy that you would have in a regular war in which someone uh, has it out for you, you know, mm -hmm. as, a, as a country and has come with this weapon, this new kind of weapon that's a biological weapon. So that's, that can be something that is used to, uh, to mobilize the, the masses. As Boris Johnson would do, quote, whatever it takes, warning of even more extreme measures to come. We must act like any wartime government. And we're doing everything we can each day to confront and ultimately defeat this horrible, invisible enemy. We're at war. In a true sense, we're at war. You know, what I mean, sometimes, in a difficult situation, there are people who will take benefits from the difficulty of the others. Those people are those who are, uh, how to try to maintain what we call social status or status quo. And what about the people who trust them? But if we look at the, uh, the people themselves, they are faced with a choice, um, right? Should we believe this political authority that's coming up with the story or should we trust the experts? And what I think is fascinating from my point of view about post truth is, is that it's just such a stark representation of the basic choice that even post truthers who believe in the earth being flat make, or even post truthers who believe in vaccines be being detrimental to your health make, which is that you have to go strictly on your trust in experts because you don't know what to even look for, right? If you saw a picture of the virus, you wouldn't know which aspects of it to look for to, to establish, oh yeah, definitely I can tell this is an animal-based uh, protein or something. And you wouldn't know how to question what the, the political authorities are saying either because you don't have access to what's happening in government either. So I think that if we look at the, you know, the, the person on the ground, they have this choice, which is fascinating. And who, you know, it, it would be very interesting to see studies of what regular people think, who they side with. Um, but with the, the war metaphor, what's interesting is that it's not only the political leaders who seem to be using this to their own advantage to draw legitimacy um, in this period of crisis. It's also religious leaders. I didn't go to church today. Why? Because I think apostles going to have the virus. <laughs> the enemies of Israel. Trump honors Israel, and it's a massive difference. And because of that, I predict America will be minimally affected by coronavirus. Who say this was sent from God uh, for this or that reason. It's also different. I saw uh, this news that was supposed to be funny, that uh, someone who claimed the virus is a punishment from God from being tolerant of LGBT people, or it was only something, another plague for, for homosexuals like AIDS, God the virus. And it was shared with the idea that, well, you know, by that logic, <laughs> Um, but the idea is that people seem to 
uh, seem to, to use this uncertain, I guess, origin uh, story behind the virus. Or to, there has been uh, this cultivated uncertainty around how it emerged and how we, we got it instead of seeing it as a sort of expected thing to motivate their own beliefs, religious beliefs or just, you know, intolerant beliefs of, mm -hmm. of different ways. And what is described in the lapis, in the uh, uh, Albert Camus, you know, when uh, usually uh, it is the figure is uh, represented by uh, Father Panalu, uh, a Jesuit priest, in this uh, description. Before he have an experience uh, facing with situation of sufferance, he condemned the situation. He preached that La Peste, uh, that the pandemic is the, the sanction of God. But when finally he faced himself with the suffering of a child, the suffering of the son of his close friend, finally he just realized that it is true, that it is a situation that is not easy. Why the innocent people like that must receive a condemnation, a sanction. It is impossible. This is interesting. Again, it's not a, a completely novel thing. So if you look at political leaders, religious leaders, people who are intolerant, they'll probably use a lot of things out in the world to justify their beliefs. It's just that now everyone's in, attention is fixated on this virus. So in a way, it would be unsurprising now if you're the kind of person who wants to find a motivation for their own beliefs to not use this virus um, as, a, as a motivation. So I would say that it's not a top-down thing where you, you know, the, the virus causes us in, in different ways to revert to it for different political or religious ends. It's more top-down in the sense that different leaders, different intolerant uh, people would have used uh, whatever was relevant in their own community to make up this kind of story. And now, because coronavirus is the most important thing in the news around the world, they all happen to overlap on the coronavirus as their main motivating um, strategy. I think that's important to sort of say and, and spread around because it's just one other way in which you can uh, combat this uh, system's one thinking saying, oh, it's the virus that does this or does that. And to think uh, instead in terms of people's various incentives and what tends to happen uh, on the ground from day to day uh, and then factor in sort of the virus only at that stage and ask, why is it now that people are fixating on the virus? Well, because actually it would be very odd if they, uh, if they didn't. We see a lot of companies, government officials, um, and basically globally having a mass campaign and investment on uh, confronting uh, misleading data. So you would have, uh, you know, uh, uh, mythbusters, fact checkers, and all of these uh, officials. And you know, uh, social media would would conduct massive censorship and taking down posts, things like that. If that is the the idea of verifying data, is it the problem? And in fact, trust is. Uh, do you think this policy uh, is efficient in any way to change their mind? Well, that's an excellent uh, question. So I think that throwing more facts at the problem will probably not be very efficient because I think the problem is one of uh, trust. But in a way, so this is a, a silver lining that I see in the current COVID-19 uh, crisis because there's so much emphasis on what experts are doing. 
And what I really like about how we approach what the experts are doing is that we are discussing now the assumptions behind the different models. Um, and I think that that's uh, something that will get people back on track um, in terms of understanding better why sometimes scientists fail, right? Because we have trial and error in, in science. So for post-truthers who, who look at a, a possible failure in science and say, aha, so therefore, actually, what do scientists know? So look at the different assumptions now and say, okay, I can see it. So if you put this assumption in the model, it will spit out that. But this is actually questionable. That's just a, a different way of engaging with the science that's being produced, which we didn't see in the case of other, um, other phenomena which, where post-truth was, uh, was rife, you know, like anti-vaxxers or, um, or even uh, the flat uh, earther uh, movements. And the fact that you have people centralizing data from all over the world, you know, everyone watches the Financial Times uh, modeling every day to see what the cases are doing, gives us this transparency that is not only there, but also there's common knowledge that it's there. So I guess very few of people who entertain post-truth beliefs about other things uh, would actually doubt that there would be an international conspiracy around this data that the FT would be a part of and all these other considerations. So it becomes all of a sudden very, very difficult to, uh, to distrust everything because distrust everything would be this you know and is now you versus uh, versus the world whereas in other post-truth beliefs it was much more localized so therefore more likely to say okay so basically i can live in this world as it is it's just the pharma big pharma complex that's uh, that's mistaken so to sort of put the weight of the whole world behind the data and then to say we have scientists modeling them and uh, the, the scientists come up with models that are based on different assumptions. Uh, that's an incentive to trust the scientists, but also to engage with them that I think will be more effective than a lot of the other things we've seen in bringing sort of post-truthers back and definitely more effective than just throwing sort of facts um, at the problem. And I will, uh, I will say in connection to this, uh, a quote by, by Simone Veil that I encountered just yesterday by, by mistake. I was just reading uh, her, uh, her book about oppression and liberty. And she says, uh, science is a monopoly by its very nature. Non-scientists have access only to the results, not to the methods. That is to say, they can only believe, not assimilate. And I think that's so true for so much of the way in which we were engaging with science um, up to this point, but it's not true of the COVID-19 pandemic because all of a sudden we're all engaging with the models. We're discussing in, in the UK case what the imperial model is saying versus what the Oxford model um, is saying. We're discussing whether the American model that predicted the UK will have 60,000 uh, deaths by August can, is, is true or not. And then it's so alarming, right? So there's this life size interest in what the assumptions are in these models now. And the fact that we're discussing them means that we're no longer in the position to just believe the models because they're contradictory, right? We have to engage with them and sort of assimilate um, finally, uh, these different aspects of the science behind behind modeling. So that's, I guess, the good the good news about post truth coming out of this. Thank you for listening. We really enjoyed producing this episode. 
and we thank Dr. Hayat Moko and Dr. Diana Popesco for their discussions. To keep yourself updated with Dr. Popesco's research and thoughts, you can follow her Twitter at Diane E. Popesco1. To know more about Dr. Hayat Moko's thoughts, watch this space as we will release a bonus episode with him talking about Albert Camus' La Peste. As usual, you can send your thoughts about this episode to info at indonesiaindepth.com and follow us on Twitter at IndoIndepth and Instagram at IndonesiaIndepth. This episode is produced by Tanita and Sean, researched by Veronica, edited by Risky, and graphically visualized by Daniel.